This conversation with Dr. Jennifer Neo, PhD, focuses on very complex and high conflict separations and divorces. I'm sure you'll find this episode particularly informative if you or someone you know is involved in a parenting or family law matter and you're hearing phrases like family reports, family consultants, single expert witnesses, parental alignment, parental alienation, or if you want to learn more about ways to support children who are caught up in very complex or high conflict separations, or if you want to learn more about a model of therapy that Dr. Jennifer Neo has developed called Reportable Intensive Family Therapy, also known as RIFT. It's really fascinating. I know a lot of you are seeking a higher quality of life, and I don't know anyone who wants the quality of their life to get worse, but that can happen when you're stuck in a rocky relationship or going through a difficult separation and divorce. My name's Liz Rankin, and I've created the Separation Fix with the intention of turning away from that mess and in the direction of a brighter future. I hope you find this episode interesting, and thanks for listening. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Neo. Dr. Neo is a clinical psychologist whose private practice is focused entirely on families navigating the family law system. Dr. Neo has been a single expert witness in some of the most complicated and serious cases, and she has completed over 1,000 psychological reports for the Family Court and Federal Courts of Australia, as well as the Family Court of Western Australia. Welcome, Jenny. Hello, Liz. Jenny, you work in some of the most, if not the most serious situations before the courts. One only has to read a newspaper, watch the news, or use one's imagination to know what such situations involve. What first drew you to such a confronting career? Well, I come from a very large family, uh, and we have a large family, and I think I understand families uh, and the complexity of relationships within families, and I've always found that very fascinating. Well, from there, it's a it's a big leap. <laughs> it's a lot of years of learning um, between your family um, and what you do today. So I'm going to start on on something that a lot of listeners might not be familiar with, which is what you do as a single expert witness within the family law system. Could you explain that role for us? Absolutely. Um, uh, so the family courts uh, rely on uh, a number of different types of experts uh, to assist. Um, there are two main types, family consultants, which are employed by the court uh, and in-house, and single expert witnesses, which tend to be in private practice and generally uh, in children's matters, uh, psychologists or psychiatrists. Um, uh, single expert witnesses uh, provide a, an objective, neutral assessment of the family to assist the court and the judge to make better decisions about children. We're governed by different legislation than family consultants. It's very, very formal role. It's not easily understood by parents or, or others. Um, uh, it's a fascinating, fascinating work. Um, not all all cases go to trial. So writing a report and doing an assessment of as many family members who might be contributing to issues and problems in the family and providing a way out um, is, in terms of a report, can be really helpful for families, whether it's um, whether it's difficult for them to hear that they might be contributing to the problems. Uh, but writing a report is an intervention in the families for everyone to read, all adults to read, and perhaps take note of where they might be going wrong, what they can do, what might be uh, the opinion of someone outside the family about how they might help their children better. If I'm not mistaken, it's, the report isn't therapeutic, is it? Uh, yes, it is. It's it's quite a, a robust intervention in terms of parents reading about what someone outside the family might think of their behaviour, their allegations, uh, how their children are going, um, when it may not be immediately apparent to them. So it can be therapeutic if they take on board what you're saying to them? 
Absolutely. And usually a report will contain recommendations about a way forward. They may not always agree with them, uh, but it's relying on somebody who has some expertise in families and difficult family situations about perhaps the services that are out there, who might need therapy, uh, what, what supports can be put in place for that family. Not easy reading, not easy reading sometimes. And also to be kept very private within that group, isn't it? It is. And often people outside family law don't understand the reason for that privacy, which is mainly to protect children. Uh, And some of the, some easy ways to understand that are the terrible historical cases where divorces and the ins and outs of divorces are spread across newspapers and how that might affect children. So there's good reasons for the privacy of it. It's so different from so many other jurisdictions, especially the United States, where some of the states, everything is available to anybody who wants to read it. That's right. And the idea that it's completely transparent is not true either, because there is anonymized cases of uh, certainly all the Family Court of Australia cases, uh, all cases are published, but anonymized. Now, um, I believe that the main focus of your work is... uh, what some people call uh, parental alienation, or as I understand it, you prefer to call it high conflict separation. However, I'd first like to hear you talk about your earlier research, particularly your dissertation, which addressed the importance of bringing the children's voice into decision-making about parenting arrangements. So let me ask you, what do you believe are the most important contributions of that research for children and adults going through separation? Okay. I'll start at the start. Um, I don't like to... I I usually only do the most complex cases. Um, There's a variety of reasons for that. Um, And it's not that I don't like the term alienation. It's just that it's usually misunderstood by uh, parents. Uh, it's used as a weapon. And these cases are so complex that all family members bring something to it. And historically, the term alienation has uh, had ideas of responsibility for the situation and blame and, you know, use as a weapon uh, in family law proceedings. So I don't like that term. Um, I just say these are children in very, very difficult circumstances. Um, Usually they are high conflict. Uh, I'm not sure I prefer that term. Uh, I'm not not sure I prefer that term, although it helps to uh, understand some of the issues going on in the family. Um, I did my doctoral research on talking with children in shared parenting families and also in families with more conventional parenting arrangements such as living with their mother and spending every alternate weekend with their father and intact families. And I apologise for that term. It does not refer to separated families having a broken uh, in all those connotations. It was just the most... um, parsimonious term to use. So compared three groups of families, parents, fathers, mothers, children in shared parenting families, uh, more conventional parenting arrangements and intact families uh, as part of my doctoral research. And that was hugely interesting. Some of the most interesting aspects of it were that often parents in separated families didn't understand what their children were thinking and feeling and describing as emotional problems. Uh, In terms of the shared parenting sample, the interesting part of that research was that fathers were really satisfied with that arrangement, but that children and mothers described it as really stressful uh, and much more stressful than fathers described it. So it was limited. It was uh, small samples of only about uh, 30 uh, mothers, 30 fathers, 30 children in each sample, so about 90 90 individuals altogether. It seems quite difficult with the research, and I won't get the technicalities of all that, but 30 actually seems like quite a high number of um, participants when you compare it to some of the other um, papers. It's hard to get um, interviewees to participate and to go through the whole um the long interviews required, it seems to me. It is, uh, particularly as 
in what you call high conflict cases, uh, sometimes the issue of participating in research becomes the issue of conflict where you can get the consent of one parent, but the other parent will disagree just on principle. So yes, getting, getting samples for family law research is very difficult. Then from those sort of those conclusions you, you made from your research about um, uh, the fathers being more satisfied with the co-parenting arrangements. And I think this other one about um, parents um, underestimating the problems that children were experiencing with the adjustment. How has that um, influenced your approach or what you, you know, how does that research influence your approach to working with families? Well, certainly when I interview children, um, uh, that's a hugely important part of assessment of families uh, because parents don't often know or understand what is going on for their children. So to read that in a report can be can be uh, can change behaviour. It can be surprising. It can raise concerns for parents. Uh, uh, that's always huge. I always see the children and helping the children as the primary focus of my work, whether it is writing reports and doing uh, undertaking assessments and writing reports or the therapeutic work I do with families. Why did you observe and conclude in your research and, and in your professional practice now that parents do underestimate the impact on the children? Why is that, do you think? Um, I think it's because parental separation is a hugely emotional experience and even if parents went through it in their own family of origin, it's a very different experience when they go through it themselves and I think it takes up so much of their thinking and emotional landscape that sometimes their children's experience is obscured for them or they don't understand or can't separate their children's experience from their own? I guess it's so hard when you're trying to um, deal with your own emotional world and all the practicalities to be really attuned to your child, I suppose, at that time. It might be, and I don't want to be critical of parents, but also children are complex human beings and can sometimes... Um, tell parents what they want to hear. They can behave in different ways with different parents. Um, children are very interesting, very interesting creatures. And I'm with you. I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty. I am a separated parent myself, but I just think the you know it, it's um, it seems that's coming out in some of these interviews of the lack of um, understanding um, of children's emotional experience of separation. So. I just wanted to. I think children sometimes want to protect their parents and don't tell their parents things that they might tell to somebody, a warm and you know, friendly stranger who's interested in what they've got to say. So um, sometimes, you know, they have to negotiate very difficult circumstances between their parents. Uh, and sometimes they need some coaxing in terms of how they feel or even thinking about how they feel to to identify some of those emotions. Sometimes when I talk to children, they thank me at the end and they go, you know, that was really good. It was like you were reading my mind when all I've done is suggest questions about how they feel about things and uh, ask them questions that they maybe haven't thought about before. So that's a very rewarding part of your challenging work, those moments. <laughs> yes. Jenny, um, many separated families have little or no involvement with the family court. And fortunately, fortunately for them, will never step inside a courtroom or be interviewed. However, some parents are involved in very adversarial situations. And, you know, I've read cases, and I don't know if you've ever been involved with them as long as a decade. Or longer. Or longer. Have you seen ones longer than a decade? Oh, I haven't seen any longer than a decade. <laughs> Oh, my. Would you explain, um, and I'm going to use quotation marks here when I say it, the terrible dilemma that children face when they're caught up in such a long adversarial process? Well, I, I think it's because um, children are born without very good critical thinking skills. They're born and they accept things that happen in their environment without thinking too much about it as babies and young children as they grow. So, 
And what they do is they trust their parents to tell them the truth. So um, even about things like, um, you know, clowns aren't scary, they're funny, fire engines aren't frightening, they're going to help people. You know, parents help children interpret the world and children believe what their parents say because they, they their development limits their capacity to look at what their parents are saying and make up their own mind about it in the early days. Um, and when they have two parents who tell them different things, that's when it becomes a terrible emotional dilemma for them. I think most of the body of perhaps mostly historical research on separated families and high-conflict separated families where they have, you know, children are juvenile delinquents and teenage pregnancies and terrible at school and things like that, those, those sort of outcomes, I think they're based on the presentation of some children when faced with that. So when parents tell them different things, they have to work out what is true. And for some children, that is exhibited and manifested in uh, externalising behaviour, um, you know, uh, early you know, early trouble concentrating, uh, you know, acting out behaviour, those sort of things. I think that's one type of reaction to high conflict parenting. I think another reaction that children uh, show when they have parents who tell them different things is they flip-flop between them. And you see this very often in a family law assessment where you see children come in and they'll tell you uh, one side uh that's aligned with one parent and they'll be very convincing about it uh, and then you will see them with the other parent and they behave in a completely different way. Sometimes they show a bit of cognitive dissonance about that and they're a bit uncomfortable that they are clearly displaying the opposite of what they've just said. But uh, I think some children don't and they just, that's the way they live. They live with one parent like that and they live with another parent like that and that parent's truth. Well, you can see the, the implications for their future mental health in having to live in that sort of environment. So that's another common reaction to high conflict parents, who parents who tell them different things and children who struggle to understand what, which parent is telling the truth? You hear that often in family law court assessments. I don't know who's telling the truth. Sometimes I believe my mum, sometimes I believe my dad. Another manifestation is children who align with one parent or another. They decide one parent is telling the truth and they stick with that parent and firmly believe that parent without any type of ambiguity and those children are often characterised as alienated or, um, uh, you know, being affected and influenced by one parent. Usually the situation is much more complex than that but you can understand children's presentation as a way of emotional survival. They have decided to choose one truth over another truth and cling to it. So in that sort of situation where a child um, has like you're saying, it's like a defense mechanism. What would be some of the warning signs that that is developing if you were a parent in that situation? If you were a parent in that situation, some of the things that you might see, uh, a child who is highly anxious uh, in relation to the other parent, uh, they might give a whole lot of reasons that might appear overtly reasonable, but um, you know, uh, someone hit me two years ago, um, I don't like his dog, uh, she, she, you know, she wanted to have me aborted before I was born, you know, those type of, uh, those type of uh, arguments which look on, on the surface as irrational uh, and not, don't seem to fit that child's presentation about why they don't want to see that other parent. So when you're talking to the children, that sort of comment just jumps out at you. The problem is that these these children often present the same way and when you conduct therapy with them and help them to calm down and get through their anxiety, you tend to see a lot more reasoned uh, responses to why they are feeling that way. And so most of my therapeutic work with these families is helping children to argue better. I had one girl who told me that she hated her mother because uh, her father saw her mother hitting her. Okay, so that's a really unusual argument. Uh, for children who are being hit by their mother, they might describe, I don't like my mum because she hits me. 
but to say I don't like my mum because my dad saw her hitting me is a really unusual argument. So I tell kids, right, kids who, kids who get hit don't argue that way. This is what you need to say. So tell me what you saw, tell me what you felt, and I'll tell you how to describe it. And then kids get confused and they think about what they're saying and we help to under help to filter through it and find out what's really going for, on for them and eventually help them to argue why they really feel that way and help them to rethink about why they are rejecting of one parent or the other. It's such it's a challenging experience for children. I mean, it's hard enough for adults to go through separation, let alone these little people who just don't have the words to explain the experience. That's right. So sometimes they do borrow one parent's arguments like, you know, uh, my mother wanted to abort me before I was born might be an argument used perhaps by a father in, in those circumstances. And yet when you talk to that child and help them to think about that, then sometimes they can describe other things like I don't like her unstable mood. I don't I don't feel safe around her because she can change suddenly or or you know, reasons that sound much more sensible and explain that child's feelings. In these situations um, of um, parental alienation, contact resistance, high conflict, um, I've heard this phrase, and I found it really touching, um, which was, um, you know, to turn a child against a parent is to turn a child against himself or herself. Um, So would you explain a bit more? You touched on some of the consequences of, of this experience for a child, but Would you talk a bit more about the short and long-term consequences for a child going through this? Well, when children present um, in this in this way as highly anxious, um, giving irrational reasons for why they don't see one parent or another, uh, underneath all that is usually some ambivalence, some feelings of positive and negative that the preferred parent usually doesn't recognise that the child feels that way. And with high-conflict parents, uh, the denigration of the other parent is the corrosive factor because children understand that when you are criticising their mother or their father, you are criticising half of themselves. And if they choose to reject that other parent, then they are rejecting that part of themselves. And an easy example is such as uh, a mother saying, um, you know, you don't like your father because he's violent and he's terrible. And when a child then shows anger, that turns into, well, am I like my father? Is is expressing anger a bad thing? It must be a bad thing. Uh, Am I bad? Am I like my father? So that that beautiful phrase you use is exactly that. It's that children understand they are half of each parent and then begin to wonder about what they are and their own identity as well. So even immediately at that time, they're already having the impact of that. Well, denigration of the other parent uh, and being caught up in the emotions of the separation draws children into that. And so short and long-term, short-term disturbance, perhaps alignment with one parent, perhaps flip-flopping between the parents, perhaps perhaps, um, externalising behaviour, any of those three presentations in the short-term, long-term, long-term. And Amy Baker's research is quite poignant in this because she retrospectively uh, speaks to adults about their childhood and when they have rejected one parent. And some of the findings that she's found is that they have a high incidence of depression, um, which which is understandable because they don't understand what happened to them in their childhood, regret, remorse about what they did, even regret that someone didn't listen, someone listened to them and instead of ignoring what they said and just making them see the other parent, um, uh, depression because there's lost opportunities to have that relationship with the other parent, guilt and remorse about their own behaviour, um, just mixed up because of what happened in their childhood, leading to um, 
drug and alcohol abuse, which is a short-term way to make yourself feel better, which often goes hand-in-hand with depression, self-medication, loss of self-esteem, problems with identity, uh, really common. And the interesting link is not just Amy's Baker's research on alienation, but also Professor Marilyn Freeman of the University of Westminster's uh, research into children who have been abducted and taken away from one parent with similar results um, and it, because it's common across the research, they're small samples but it's common in lots of different research across the world that these are the effects, the long-term effects on children. Well, that makes me feel incredibly sad and probably the listeners like <laughs> shocked as well. And you have a lot of hope with your, your new therapy you've developed. However, before I want to get to that, I do want to ask you some more about this problem because, you know, it's so prevalent. Would you say it's intentional or is it sometimes unconscious, this, what, what parents do in these situations? Like, is it, I, I used to think that it was actually intended, but the more I sort of prepared for this interview, I was thinking maybe it's less culpable than that sometimes by the parent. What do you think? Uh, I think these cases are incredibly complex mm. in a very, very small number of cases. Uh, there is some intentionality and certainly therapy that puts all the allegations to the test can sometimes expose that intentionality. But describing it as intentional is a superficial way of understanding these families and uh, Bala, Nick Bala, Say, Michael Saini and Barbara Feidler's book, uh, I think it's called Children Resisting Contact, has a lovely exploration of some of the factors that all family members bring to the situation. And certainly my own therapy has shown again and again that Although sometimes these cases look the same on the outside, a preferred parent who was confident in their position, uh, an irrational and anxious child or children, and a uh, rejected parent who is equally firm that they have done nothing wrong and they've had a formally good relationship with this child, when you apply some therapy and put things to the test, what you find is that all family members contribute to it and you find preferred parents who are anxious, who genuinely believe allegations, who have uh, even allegations where there is, you know, a strong element of truth or even justifiable estrangement, which is when there is really good reasons why children don't want to see one parent or another. It doesn't mean that family therapy can't be applied. Um, children's anxiety certainly contributes and feeds into it. Parent-children dynamics uh, for rejected parents, and I really hate the phrase targeted parents, and I think anyone who uses that term for the rejected parents doesn't understand the dynamic because it, it also absolves that parent of blame. When you, when you use therapy in, this, in these types of cases, what you find is that rejected parent often uh contributes to the rejection uh, by their behavior prior to the estrangement uh, and then sometimes uh, and very frequently post the estrangement by their reactions to the child. Uh, a good example of that is say the child is increasingly rude to that parent, then that parent might unusually apply a really harsh, consequence or reaction to that rudeness when that's not what that just drives the estrangement so all family members bring something to it um very rarely is it intentional and it's just you know very confused family lots of things going on uh and very little hope usually well speaking about this issue of hope and you know you've been working in this area for such a long time I really wanted to talk to you about this new intervention that you've developed um, called Reportable Intensive Family Therapy or RIFT. Um, I'd really like to hear how you develop this and what happens in these four-day interventions, if that's the right word. Okay, well, I'll, I'll uh, start out with how it started. Um, I've long been involved in families and uh, and family therapy and have really pursued and 
seen pre presentations and read research and books by people who conduct therapy in this area, uh, including understanding the pros and cons, the deficits in the therapy, uh, how they work, uh, why they work. Um, and there was two impetus for me uh, on that background for beginning a different type of therapy. One of the impetus uh, was that I was sick of being involved in cases that were heading towards trial in family court where it was either or for the child. It was, is this parent so bad? Is the estrangement so bad? There should be a change of residence, uh, a move away from their preferred parent to their rejected parent, or should the rejected parent just go away? Um, and I really hate those cases because I think children genuinely deep down want something with both their parents. So I hated being involved in those cases. The second impetus was that I was working a lot in Western Australia and was asking asked to do therapy over there. So adapted some of these immersion models, um, mostly uh, North American, uh, that include uh, working with the family intensively for a few days, uh, at least initially. So I adapted some of those uh, and some of the problems with those type of therapy is the sheer number of therapists and allied health people that are involved in caring for the families and looking after the, like including a cook at a, you know, at a summer camp and, um, uh, one therapy uses uh, animal assisted. So there's horse riding. So, uh, with just me, I thought I could combine some of the better aspects of a whole lot of therapies and use them. Uh, one type of therapy is nicely based on cognitive behavioural about helping children to uh, think carefully about how their beliefs are formed. So aspects of that, uh, the using spending intensive time with the family. One of the deficits of one of these types of therapy was that they could take families, four or five families, off to a summer camp but when and, and get some good progress. But when they return to their normal environment, uh, the problems tended to re-emerge. So I thought that maybe doing the therapy in their family environment would help and it certainly has uh, and helped me to see that sometimes including extended family members who are powerful influences on what is going on for the family can be really useful and therapeutically benefit uh, the families by including them. So um, that's been really helpful. So that's that, that's how I started. I uh, started with a few families using all those uh, all that knowledge about what works and what doesn't work. Um, and I found that every single family is very different, but there are some commonalities. And the way I go about it is I travel all over. Uh, I go out to their family homes. I see them in their family homes where they're most comfortable. Uh, I work with the family in various combinations of family therapy over eight hours every day. Usually a huge component of that is fun. I don't like to do serious type therapy, but I like children to be relaxed. So relaxing children involves having fun. I like having fun. Kids like having fun, you know, so we have lots of fun. Uh, and help children to talk about their problems with that their rejected parent um, in sensible, calm ways that helps that parent to understand, that helps the child to understand. I do parent work. I have a few parent meetings. Sometimes it's the first time parents have met, you know, outside a courtroom in years, first time they've ever spoken to one another. Um, and one of the powerful influences in the therapy is that parents have been through family court. They understand the stress, the money, the tensions, um, and the therapy gives them a way to approach the problems in a different way, which is really lovely. So usually the child-parent work is completed over the four days and we have some outcomes, not imposed on them, that is that the family works together to, I give them feedback on everything, I tell everybody everything that's going on, I get consent from everybody to do everything and then by the fourth day we sit down and usually have a bit of a think about where we go from here about all the information that we've collected over the four days. People say to me, what can you do in four days? It must be very fast therapy. I say it's the slowest therapy I have ever done. I can wait for children to calm down. I can wait for parents to 
you know, come up with, think carefully about their reasons. You know, it's really slow therapy. It's fast for me. It's intensive for me, but slow for families, really lovely. And by the fourth day, we usually have some plan moving forward, uh, agreed to and and uh, agreed to by the parents and the children. Everyone knows what is happening. And then we usually move into a case management mode, which usually tends to be parent-parent work. Uh, and I do that all over the country. I I don't often go back to see people. What I mostly do is manage people by emails uh, and usually it's about teaching parents how to communicate appropriately. So a common a common scenario in the case management phase is someone writes to me and says, um, maybe I'll say it's a father, writes to me and says, I really, want, I really want the children for the next summer holidays. Can you help me get that, Jenny? Here's what I want and puts it down and then I might convert that uh, writing into something that is more palatable because usually it's communication problems. They send it off to the mother. She might write to me and say, I can't believe he's written this and I can't believe that, so I will help her phrase a response that's just about being a reasonable parent because that's the basis of the therapy, helping parents to go back to being reasonable parents. So help them to think about what a reasonable response might be. So in in effect, I'm talking to myself, writing both responses, but in the process, training, modelling reasonable behaviour um, and helping parents to respond in a reasonable way to each other. I have so many questions <laughs> about what you just <laughs> talked about. So many questions. Okay. Firstly, at the after the therapy's over, that's interesting when you take on that sort of task. And it reminds me of something which I believe is still very popular um, with the previous head of the family court, um, Her Honor Bryant, which is that at, that sounds like very sophisticated parental coordination there at the end, doesn't it? It is. It is. Very There's so- a big difference. Very sophisticated. <laughs> it is, and it's it's quite intimate in that you 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 need to be available for parents. But I say that I would much rather spend 15 minutes responding to a text or an email on a Sunday morning when the crisis is happening or when someone's upset rather than that parent go to their lawyer on Monday morning, write an affidavit, spend time in court three, four, five, six months later arguing the point about what happened at Little Athletics. Um, It's much more... It's it's a lovely lovely work really. So I don't mind that. It's not for everyone that type of work, but certainly the communication and the email communication, helping parents to communicate, means that the children drop out of the therapy and they just go and are just happy because their parents are talking. Uh, they don't have to maintain different realities with each parent because they know their parents are talking and they know they can't get away with that anymore. And that I will make their parents talk about their different allegations, you know, kids will go off and say, you know, mum won't let me do this or, um, you know, dad won't let me do that. And I'll say, well, look, parents are talking about it. Really, we'll, we'll sort that out. You don't have to worry about it. So the kids just get on with being kids and we we help the parents to start cooperating properly for the first time with a really intensive model and of managing those parents so that nothing happens outside of what you know. So you have to be on call to know everything that's going on so that you can manage it and avert crises before they happen. It's slightly different from parenting coordination. It's one aspect of parenting coordination. Um, But, and so, and uh, you would know that I'm secretary of the AFCC Australian chapter. So we are very keen for more uh, more practitioners to take up parenting coordination and help in these type of matters in this way. So that aspect certainly is pe- teaching parental communication and how to cooperate properly. And I think parents get some satisfaction with knowing that they have an expert that they can ask, somebody they trust, that they can ask advice, they don't have to wallow in that anxiety, they don't have to talk to their lawyer who doesn't know the other side, who might be able to sort the problem out before it goes too big. And certainly the prospect of returning to court over, you know, what colour lunchbox the child users or, you know, children with two bags, you know, children who are, you know, stripped down and taken out of one parent's clothes at the front door of the other parent and dressed in the other parent's clothes, you know, those sort of issues can be resolved without going to court. Well, um, 
In so many um, family law cases, you know, you know so well from your work, and I'm aware, there are, there's elements of family violence, and that can be on quite a range of, of situations. With your model, your RIFT model, um, are, are you able to work in that space where there are accusations or have been confirmed incidences? Oh, absolutely. I always like to empower people and the therapy is always about empowerment. So uh, we're talking about women, we're talking about women, and what I like to do is to make them not anxious, not be trapped by their fear or anxiety, and I like them to approach that relationship with their other parents from a position of power and assertiveness. So I teach assertiveness skills, I teach power, I teach them how to get different results than they have because the relationship problems, and this is not just for violence and high conflict, it's relationship problems tend to be based on a pattern, a repetitive pattern. Arguments always end the same way. So it's about skill building and teaching people to argue differently, understand the other parent and and get a different outcome from that conversation. Always with people's safety in mind and ensuring that that's appropriate. Um, you know, I often make the call that it is not appropriate in certain circumstances, usually because the therapy is reportable. Uh, people are quite compliant with me in that they want to impress me and they want to do what they say because they know that I will, uh, if things, if they don't, I will tell the court about it or I have the, at least have the possibility of telling the court about it. So they, th- there is an element of them trying to comply and trying to impress me that allows me some control in the therapy, but I certainly am doing risk assessments all the time about what is safe and what is appropriate. And also safe for you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Ethically, uh, our, first, uh, our first ethical responsibility is to ourselves is to keep ourselves safe. Something that was really interesting that you touched upon then was just that so many of these families have been locked in the family court system for so long in litigation. And, um, you know, I've experienced, you know, I've seen this, people sometimes get trapped. They actually want to get out of the, they want to get, they want a way out. And I can see how your program would also provide that in a way that's much more palatable rather than how things get so caught up in the dynamic of winning and losing once you, once, especially once you've been in the family court for a few years, the, the, the stakes get higher and higher. I do. Um, I like to give people autonomy. They make the decisions. I only ask them to be a reasonable person. Uh, and then I help them manage the other person. So they may have a perception the other person is unreasonable and they are reasonable, but I help both parents to be reasonable. And and to know that there is somebody there that they can, you know, send an email to, ring, text if they need to at any moment uh, when they're uncertain about what to do is really useful for them. Uh, and even the most complex, most difficult cases with the worst allegations can be turned into something else and away from court. Um, I have lots of families at the moment that I am managing that um, have turned away from court and are managing themselves and have a sense of autonomy about their life that they don't seem to have on the roller coaster of going to your solicitor, filling in an affidavit, attending court events that you have no control over, which is a roll of the dice about which way it will go. So it, it helps relieve the stress, I think, for people. That coordination role you, you, that you're referring to that you're enjoying, it's interesting to me because I did read a, a little... Uh, paper about someone who was doing parental uh, coordination he's and he said he was leaving that career for the more gentle career of becoming a crash test dummy (laughs) yeah I said you have to be a robust practitioner to deal with it because these emotions are so high people are so stressed they're not being reasonable I call it separation psychosis they uh, they do the most amazing things and then Part of that, of course, is that when they get through that, they look at their behaviour and they can't believe that that was them doing it. So there can be some self-denial about some of their behaviour through the separation because they don't like to think of it as part of their self-identity. So that projection outwise and outwards and, you know, blame and blame of other people. 
As someone who's just so experienced in this sphere um, with these high-conflict uh, situations, do you think any of the family processes, you know, mediation, collaboration, arbitration, litigation, I know it's so individual per case, but do you think any are more appropriate or less appropriate for these types of situations? I think they are all very, very good uh, and all useful and all great processes. Um, but with the, some families need decision, they need court, they need litigation. So I tend to, and I can't really say uh, very much about the other processes because I tend to only work with the high conflict people who are litigating. With those people who can't make a decision, uh, a really important part of therapy is the reportable aspect of it. That's what keeps people compliant. Uh, there's usually a very reluctant participant and one who is more enthusiastic for the therapy because they want to gain something from it and someone who thinks that therapy is another waste of time. And sometimes that changes over the therapy when people see the value in it and they certainly see their children improving. So... Uh, the important part is the reportable so that the, the there's a motivation for both parents to behave well and to be seen to be behaving well. Um, over the therapy, particularly the intensive part of that, that is really put to the test. It's quite, um, it's quite rigorous in that parents can stand up and say, look, I, I used to have a wonderful relationship with my child but, you know, uh, he ruined it on me and now I don't see them and haven't seen them for two years. And yet during the therapy, you often see things like parents who can't maintain a conversation with their children. Uh, one example springs to mind where a mother repeatedly talked about her work problems. Every time the children said, look, I, you know, they started to relax, they started to talk about, you know, I, I did this at school and isn't this wonderful? And this mother said, well, you know what happened to me at work last week? You know, a toilet broke and this happened and stuff like that. And the children just lost interest. So despite my support and, and trying to help the mother and educate her about what interests the children and, and when they show enthusiasm about something, you know, help her to recognise that, she continued to fail miserably because relationships are built in the milliseconds between a shared smile or a joke over a game or a tease or a, or a you know, a, a touch of a hand and looking into each other's eyes. That's what builds a relationship. And some parents can stand back and say, um, you know, the other parent is doing this to me intentionally and this is why I don't see my children. But I have to say there is a lot of parents out there who have been rejected or estranged from their children who, who when put to the test, um, can't maintain that relationship or it becomes clear that there's problems with the way they interact with their children that have just become more prominent as the children have grown. Remember that show, The Nanny? She used to come to your house. <laughs> no. You're like, she didn't have any professional training, I don't think, but you're just like, yeah, just you're just teaching people how to, probably people who don't even have the skills originally. The children really are, and also too, what I can see so fascinating for, for these children is, I mean, not only are they, the family's getting resolution to their family law matter, they're getting these tools they're not going to get anywhere else because their family, their parents aren't able to teach them. That's right. And certainly with the cases where there's family violence and real risk there, um, I, I say, you know, this is your one chance to learn some skills to manage this relationship with the father of your children, because that's who we're talking about, for the first time ever. And if you don't get on top of this, you're going to spend the rest of your life being fearful, worried, perhaps going into other relationships with the same dynamics. So use it as an opportunity to learn and we'll, we'll work on it together. Well, um, I'm going to have to get your details and I'll put them on the on my webpage for the um, podcast because I'm sure a lot of people are going to be really interested in this therapy and you're going to obviously have to train some more people because you're not going to be able to do it all yourself. Four-day four day therapy and the family reports and the interviewing for the family reports and your own family. So <laughs> you're going to be busy, busy, busy. Thank you very much. Now, one more thing I want to ask you. Um, well, firstly, before I ask my last question, is there something else that 
you would like to share that I haven't asked you about that you think is important? I mean, you've got so much knowledge, or maybe I could just ask you the last question, which would be, if you had one suggestion for a parent going through a separation, like at any stage of the process, um, what would it be? It would be that of all the children I talk to, um, I understand that children think that whatever happens in their family is how all families uh, behave. They don't understand that other families are different. So their experience in that family is is uh, is that. Um, and when you change it, it has a huge effect on their stability and sense of themselves. I mean, an easy example to understand is parents who quite blithely change a child's school where children have only known one school, they understand that environment. To move a school can be have a dramatic effect on some children with some temperaments um, and parents don't understand that changing environments and parents behaving uh, in unusual ways and uh, everything in their life being disrupted and upset can be really confusing and frightening for children. Children often describe to me things like, um, and perhaps I'll put some pop on the end of it as well, uh, you know, that, uh, that when their parents fight, um, it's like, uh, you know, they're supposed to protect me from the monster, but then they become the monster. So... Children really don't like all that disruption. If you can keep it as calm as possible and as normal and familiar as possible for them, it's better for them. Uh, I can also say that lots of children tell me that one of the best parts about their parents separating is that now they don't have to listen to their parents arguing and that can be a really positive thing for kids. So don't think it's a bad thing to separate. Lots of kids say, my mum my and dad don't know, but I'm so happy now because they are both happier and they are separated and I don't have to listen to the arguing. Well, that's a hopeful note for those families. Dr. Neo, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your expertise. Your depth of your knowledge is incredible. I know I've only touched upon the tip of the iceberg there, but thank you so much today. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. I really hope you enjoyed the podcast. And if something in the episode has motivated you, I recommend that before you take any action, you get professional advice because the conversations are general in nature and not based on your particular situation. Please reach out to me if you have any questions or if there's another topic you'd like explored. And if you know someone who might benefit from the show, remember to tell them about it or suggest my Instagram or website, www.theseparationfix.com. Good luck being your best self today. Just know I'm out there too, trying as well. <laughs>